Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome everybody, welcome to the LSE for this evening's hybrid event hosted by the LSE's Law School and the LSE's European Institute. My name's Simon Glendinning and I'm head of the European Institute and also professor in European philosophy. And I'm really delighted to chair this event tonight and to do so on behalf of both the Law School and the European Institute and to introduce you to our wonderful panel, Professor Guminda Bambra, Hans Gudnani, Professor Helen Thompson and my LSE colleague, Professor Mike Wilkinson, who told me that we met in a pub many years ago. I certainly don't remember. (laughs) Nor do I. No, you did, because you told me about this. It was obviously a better evening for me. This event is organised to mark the launch of Hans's book, Euro-Whiteness, Culture, Empire and Race in the European Project. And for anyone here interested in purchasing a copy, which I'm sure you will after this event, the book stall is set up outside the theatre where Hans will also be signing after this event, where there will also be a reception, to which you will be welcome to join us. Now, this book, Euro-Whiteness, in my view, it really is quite a game-changer. We're quite familiar with books that get advertised as saying, you know, the untold story of something, something, something. And I think this book really attempts something just like that. It's, I think, the first book seriously to explore the racial and ethnic motivations internal to the processes of European integration and the formation of the European Union. Now that really is a sort of entry point into thinking about that historical development, particularly after the Second World War, that is an untold story, because there's another story which the EU will tell about itself, and indeed which many academics who work on Europe will repeat faithfully, which is that the European Union, rather than an expression of some problematic racial and ethnic motivations, is the expression of cosmopolitanism, almost the exact opposite. I can see some of my own students today, and I'm going to read out a passage from Immanuel Kant that I read in the class this morning, because it is a summary of that cosmopolitan vision. Now, the quote that I'm going to give you here is also on the European Union website. So that, as it were, Kantian affirmation of a cosmopolitan motivation in terms of the European Union is embraced by the Union itself. But funnily enough, they cut out the last sentence. The European Union will have cut out the last sentence. Extremely important to Hans' argument. So this is Kant talking about what happens in Europe when there's basically war going on all the time, which there was. And he's talking about these countries so closely linked by trade that when there's an upheaval in one or other state because of war, it affects everybody. And this, he says, indirectly prepares the way for a great political body of the future without precedent in the past. Although this political body exists for the present only in the roughest of outlines, 
it nonetheless seems as if a feeling is beginning to stir in all its members, in all the European nation states, each of which has an interest in maintaining the whole. That's the bit that's cited in the website of the European Union. Something's going on, processes in Europe, which are going to bring about the emergence of this great new political body without precedence in the past, a supranational union of states, a federation. And Kant goes on, not quoted in the European Union website, and this encourages the hope that after many revolutions, with all their transforming effects, the highest purpose of nature, a universal cosmopolitan existence, will at last be realized as the matrix within which all the capacities of the human race may develop. So a cosmopolitan end of this historical process which sort of has its first moments in Europe. That last sentence omitted on the EU website, and in a way this makes Hans's point in his book very well. The aim, yes, of the Union is to live with neighbours who are friends rather than enemies, where war is less rather than more likely. That's its real goal. But it is also, and first, an expression of European regionalism, not global cosmopolitanism. The latter would, as it were, come out of this at some later stage. And we might begin to wonder, in the formation of the European Union, is that cosmopolitan end, some human universality at the end of these processes, is it simply a myth? Well, it's certainly a myth that Europe has internalized as belonging to its own development, even if the actual development of its history is a European regionalism, just as Kant says, you know, it's going to happen first in Europe. And it's a European regionalism in its <coughs> ethnic and cultural inflection, a regionalism that one might want to oppose to a nascently cosmopolitan Europe that Kundani calls Euro-whiteness. And it's Euro-whiteness that he wants to suggest is the real motivation of this European regionalism, which Kant says has a cosmopolitan hope inside itself, but as it were, on its own, it certainly doesn't fulfill. Now, Euro-whiteness, this title, Kudnani takes from the text by Hungarian-American sociologist Josef Boritz. It's almost a laundry metaphor, I think, uh, Euro-white, because Euro-whiteness contrasts with dirty white which is a condition of a white majority countries who want to be in the EU. And that would be particularly in recent times, Central and Eastern European countries. They'd be dirty white and they have to clean up to become Euro white if they're to become members of the Union. Euro white is, Kudnani then stresses, related to the concept of whiteness, but cannot be simply reduced to it which is a really interesting second contrast. So you've got the contrast between dirty white and Euro white, which is the laundry metaphor, as it were, but then also a relationship between Euro whiteness and whiteness, ethnic identity. And so the question is, and perhaps the question we'll be pursuing here tonight, or one question we'll be pursuing here tonight is, can Euro whiteness maintain a relation to the cosmopolitan hope or the cosmopolitan horizon that would offer the possibility of a transcendence 
of whiteness, which it can't be reduced to, the promise of escaping whiteness through Euro-whiteness, or is it ultimately trapped in that space? Well, to discuss this and other questions, we have our guest tonight, starting uh, second after Hans, uh, Guminda Bambra, Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Studies in the School of Global Studies at the University of Sussex. Hans Kudnani, here on uh, my immediate left, an Associate Fellow and former Europe Programme Director at Chatham House, and the author, of course, of Euro-Whiteness, as well as a number of other books. Then next in line, third along there, uh, Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy at the University of Cambridge. And then at, at the end, Mike Williamson, Professor of Law at LSE. Let's get going then. Well, the format of this event will be having me now finished. Um, Hans will have a, an opportunity to present his argument to you. And then the other three will have an opportunity to critically engage with that, those ideas and their take on the book. And then there'll be a short right of reply for Hans at the end of that. Uh, and then an opportunity for a Q&A with you and also for the people who are joining us in a hybrid form that there's a PhD student keeping a monitoring of somewhere so that I know where it is. <coughs> there. Okay, so on we go. Hans, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Simon, for that really kind introduction um, and for those really interesting remarks, which I'm still processing myself. And thank you so much for hosting this event, Mike, as well. Um, thank you for coming and, and to those of you who are watching online. So what I'm going to try to do in 10 minutes or so is give a sort of gist of the argument. Uh, I'm going to kind of whiz through it a little bit. And I will try to be brief because I'm lucky to have such a fantastic panel and I really want to hear from, from them. Um, so Simon, do cut me off if I go on for more than 10 minutes. So Simon, you've already given a little bit of an introduction to the book. Another way of thinking, I suppose, about what it tries to do is, is well, what it is, is it's about ideas of Europe through history. Um, and in particular, where the European Union fits into that longer history of ideas uh, of Europe. And in particular, what I try to do in the book is I try to distinguish between two kinds of ideas of Europe. On the one hand, ethnic cultural ideas of Europe, and on the other hand, civic ideas of Europe. And in doing so, I'm using a distinction that comes from the study of nationalism, in particular uh, from Hans Korn, who wrote this book in 1944, The Idea of Nationalism, who distinguishes between a civic and an ethnic uh, nationalism. And I argue that we can think of European identity and the EU in a somewhat analogous way to nationalism, as Simon has already suggested, as what I call regionalism, which is not the opposite of nationalism, as a lot of uh, people, a lot of pro-Europeans, especially I think in Germany, uh, want to think of the EU as being. But it's actually, as I say, rather analogous to nationalism, except on a larger continental scale. So, you know, Benedict Anderson famously calls nations imagined communities. I think we can think of uh, Europe as being an imagined community as well. And just as you have in the history of nationalisms, this kind of complex interaction between a civic nationalism on the one hand, or a civic element of nationalism on the one hand, and an ethnic or cultural uh, element on the other hand. So I think in the long history of ideas uh, of Europe, um, you have those two elements as well. And really what I try to show in the book is how the two of them interact, um, and in particular how uh, the ethnic cultural element, elements don't just disappear after 1945, but they persist uh, and they influence the European project um, itself. 
So the story I tell um, really begins in classical antiquity when, you know, the idea of Europe as a space first emerges, but it's really in the medieval period that you get the first kind of version of European identity, in other words, Europeanness uh, as opposed to a space uh, called Europe. And during the medieval period, what it means to be European is fairly straightforwardly synonymous with being Christian. The embodiment of that idea of Europe, that medieval idea of Europe that's synonymous with Christianity, is Charlemagne, who then you know, becomes, in the post-1945 period, this iconic, inspirational figure for the European Union, which I think already shows you some of the kind of continuities, you know, going all the way from the medieval period through to the post-1945 period. And then in the modern period, you get this much more, this new, much more complex idea of Europeanness, which emerges in the context of the European Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution. Uh, and so it's a kind of secular, rationalist idea of Europe as opposed to the religious idea that you have in the medieval period. But it also emerges in the context of the encounter of Europeans with the populations of Africa and Asia, and in particular the Americas. In other words, the context in which the idea of whiteness emerges as well. So as well as being a, ra a rationalist idea of Europe, it's also a racialized uh, idea of Europe uh, and Europeanness. And so the question then becomes, and this is really the question that the book tries to answer, is what then happens after 1945? Pro-Europeans like to think that a completely new idea of Europe emerges after 1945, 1945 as a kind of hour zero and that this new idea of Europe is a purely civic uh, one that has nothing to do with these older ethnic cultural ideas uh, of Europe. Even though, as the example of Charlemagne already illustrates, they constantly draw on this older history and these older ideas of Europe. The real history of the European Union, and, and Simon has already sort of uh, indicated this, that the, you know, there's, a, there's a certain kind of myth that gets created by the European Union itself about its own history, but the real history um, is a lot messier than pro-Europeans uh, often want to suggest. In particular, they want to think of the EU, European integration, as a post-colonial project. But actually, that's just historically wrong. It's not just that the early phase of European integration intersects with the end of European colonialism, but the part of the point of European integration in the 1950s was for France and Belgium to consolidate, to integrate, if you like, their remaining colonies in Western Central Africa at a time when they were no longer able to maintain them on their own. Um, there's a fantastic book on this, the definitive book on this, called Eurafrica by Pio Hansen and Stefan Jonsson, which is um, part of a series that Germinda uh, edited, I think. And that book came out a decade uh, ago. Um, it's still, I think, remarkably little known outside of, of academia. But as I say, it tells you this story of how part of the point of European integration in the 1950s was to consolidate those colonies. I call this the original sin of European integration, you know, conscious, consciously analogising to um, the role of slavery in the history of the United States. Pretty soon after the Treaty of Rome is signed in 1957, um, which includes these Belgian and, and French colonies in Western Central Africa, um, those colonies become independent, um, roughly around 1960. So that's the end of the EU as a colonial project. There's an open question, uh, which we may get into in the discussion, about whether there are neo-colonial elements in, uh, in what becomes the European Union. But I do think that then a new, um, more civic regionalism emerges in the context of what becomes the EU, centred in particular on these ideas of the social market economy uh, and the welfare state 
and the depoliticized mode of governance that is produced by European integration. I think Mike might say more about that uh, particular aspect, the depoliticized mode of governance, in his remarks. But what then happens is that this history of European colonialism and the role of the uh, early phase of the European project in it gets completely forgotten even as the Holocaust starts to become an increasingly central collective memory uh, for the EU. And so the way I describe this in the book is that the EU and the narrative that the EU tells about itself is based on the, what I call the internal lessons of European history. In other words, um, you know, the centuries of conflict culminating in World War II and the Holocaust, what Europeans did to each other but not on the external lessons of European history. In other words, what Europeans did to the rest of the world, in particular, European colonialism. And I think there's actually something structural going on here. There's a structural reason why that happens, which is that European integration encourages European countries to think about their histories in terms of their relations with each other. As I say, this history of conflict culminating in World War II and the Holocaust, rather than in terms of their interactions with the rest of the world. So in other words, the history of Europe is a kind of a closed system. So this is why I argue that um, there's a way in which the EU is a kind of a vehicle for imperial amnesia. The next phase of European integration that I then describe is what happens after the end of the Cold War, the sort of 20-year period after the end of the Cold War, when the EU is in this kind of expansive, optimistic mode as it enlarges to include Central and Eastern European countries. And pro-Europeans start to imagine that they can almost remake the whole world in the image of the EU. And this is precisely the period in which this idea of the EU as a cosmopolitan project really starts to, um, to take off. Um, so it's kind of a very hubristic moment uh, in the European project. There are, I think, two problems with it. The first is that you get this revival of the idea of a European civilizing mission. That's not a concept that I've used so far, but it's one of, you know, really the continuities, I think, in this long history of ideas of Europe is this idea of a civilizing mission. And I think what happens, you know, obviously that, you have that in the context of European colonialism, and I think what happens in the post-Cold War period is that you have a new version of that, a sort of postmodern, technocratic version of a civilizing mission. Jan Jelonka has written persuasively, I think, about this. And there's also even the idea of sort of civilizing international politics itself. You start to get these ideas of, the, of Europe as a, as a civilian power, as a normative power, and sort of transforming and civilizing international politics itself. The second problem is that even as the EU, what becomes the EU, enlarges to include Central and Eastern European countries, its borders to the south remain very hard. Its borders to the east become quite porous and soft, but its borders to the south remain hard. One example of this is that Morocco applies to join European communities in 1987 and is just told flatly, you can't join because you're not a European country. And so I think what happens is that paradoxically actually the enlargement of the EU to include Central and Eastern European countries strengthens this idea that it's a white block. That expansive, optimistic, hubristic period in the European project I think comes to an end quite suddenly with the Euro, at the beginning of the Euro crisis in 2010. And so the last part of the story, the final chapter as it were, uh, of the story I tell is about what's happened in the sort of 13 years since the beginning of the Euro crisis in, in 2010. 
And I think what happened was, you know, beginning with the Euro crisis and then the series of other crises um, that hit the EU, the EU went into a kind of a much more sort of defensive mode, having been in this outward expansive uh, mode for 20 years after the end of the Cold War. It goes into a much more defensive mode and it starts to see itself as being surrounded uh, by threats. But then the second really critical juncture, which I think we can see now in retrospect, was the refugee crisis in 2015. And what I think starts to happen after that is it, the pro-Europeans and the EU start to interpret these threats in civilizational terms. This is against the background of you know, the rise of the far right across Europe and the way that the centre-right is increasingly uh, mimicking the rhetoric and the policies of the far right, especially on these questions around identity, immigration and Islam. Migration policy, refugee policy is obviously you know, where you can really see this happening most clearly. But I think you also start to get in European foreign policy debates um, this kind of civilizational thinking. In other words, the idea that international politics is a clash of civilizations and Europe is a distinct civilization that has to defend itself. And so I think in this context, and this is where I'll end, it seems to me that the ethnic cultural element of European regionalism, that, as I say, has this long history going back to the medieval period, rather than getting weaker, it seems now actually to be getting stronger. And it's these ethnic cultural ideas of European regionalism connected to Christianity uh, and whiteness, but in the context of the European Union that I call Euro-whiteness. Thank you so much for inviting me to comment on the book, and that means also to read the book. I very much enjoyed reading Euro Whiteness, and I thought that Hans really captured some of the key tensions that exist within the EU project, both through its sort of emergence and through its development over the last uh, few decades. And I think that, particularly in terms of the sort of subtitle, Culture, Empire and Race, these are the things that Hans captures incredibly well in terms of this history and this, these are themes that are often not discussed as well within sort of European studies or then studies of the European Union. And I think it's perhaps particularly important that he has written about them because hopefully that will mean that they'll be talked about and discussed in fora where usually academic work is slightly harder to make an entry and so I think it's really important for you know, who you are as well as what you have written in terms of the um, importance of the themes that do need to be discussed beyond the university and the academic space. One of the key issues that Hans sets out is this need to distinguish between myth and history when we discuss both the EU and Europe more broadly. And I think that's captured incredibly nicely in the term around cosmopolitan Europe. You know, so this has come a defining conceptual term to how we might think about Europe and the EU. And yet, if you counterpose the term cosmopolitan to multicultural and think to what extent does cosmopolitan carry or convey the idea of Europe also as a multicultural project, we can begin to see what is erased from understandings of the EU that are simply framed in terms of cosmopolitanism, which has no sense of the colonial histories that make up Europe or then the multicultural societies that now constitute it as a consequence of those colonial histories. And so in a sense, what I take from Hans's engagement is to think more deeply about how we got here. And for Hans, a lot of that is around terms of regionalism and specifically around issues of race, 
given the title, you're a whiteness. And I think that's one aspect that I'd like to push back against a little bit, because I think that the colonial histories that come to constitute Europe are not only about race. They're also about race, but actually they're much broader than that. And I think that whilst Hans does mention the colonial histories that make up Europe, I think the failure to take account of those colonial histories in the very construction of Europe is also needed to, to push the argument further. I mean, one of the things that we can see in Pio, who you've already mentioned, you know, he set out two decades ago, that what scholarship on the historical evolution of European identity tends to do is tell a very simple and encouraging story. And it's one of rivalries among European countries, it's about the role of the US in post-war reconstruction, and it's then about the bipolar division of the world in the, as embodied within the Cold War. Out of this, Europe is seen to have become an expression of peaceful integration and a demonstration about how a past of conflict and inequality can be overcome. For this, it even won the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> what is omitted, however, in this lovely story is the dismantling of another world order, a world order which had been structured on European colonialism and the ongoing conflicts in which Europe and the EU remained embroiled even during the decades of peace. And Hans mentions this as well within the book. But one of the things, and I think this is an incredibly important thing for us to think about, and that is the fact that victory in Europe after the Second World War and its commemoration on the 8th of May 1945, which saw the liberation of occupied France and the defeat of Nazi Germany, this is the exact same day on which Charles de Gaulle orders French troops to begin a massacre of Algerians who are demonstrating for their own liberation from French colonial rule, leading to the death of anything between 20 to 40,000 Algerians. So on the one hand, we celebrate liberation of occupied France and Nazi Germany. And on the other hand, you have Charles de Gaulle on the very same day ordering the massacres in Algeria. Now, the Algerian War for Independence from France overlapped with the emergence of the European Economic Community, within which Algeria was a subordinate member for the first few years. And so the War of Liberation from France was actually also a war of liberation from the European Community. These are not isolated incidents. They're accompanied by French atrocities in Indochine across the period, as well as British massacres in the Malayan Emergency and complicity in the war in Korea and elsewhere. The one difference with the war in Algeria is that that war was fought within the territory of the European community, and yet it's still not reckoned with in the promotion otherwise of Europe as a continent of peace in the decades after the end of the Second World War. So the idea that Europe should or could be a model for the world, I think is dismantled quite effectively by Hans's arguments. And whilst he discusses these in the context of regionalism, as I mentioned earlier, I would emphasize in particular this need for this focus on Europe's colonial histories have structured the ongoing project of Europe. One thing I'd want to mention just briefly in the context of sort of political debates that are happening at the moment, to the extent that Europe comes to be seen simply as a cultural project, and an idea that what it is is something that develops internal to itself, that is, as a consequence of the, the gifts and talents, etc., and the labor and taxes of the people who live within Europe, absolutely misunderstands the extent to which Europe's wealth has been made on the basis of colonial extraction, generally, collectively, and cumulatively. 
And there's a lot of work, or increasing amounts of work, that look at the ways that it's the colonial patrimonies that come into Europe that end up funding what are seen to be otherwise national welfare projects within Europe. So when you have politicians within Europe decrying the entry of refugees and migrants and asylum seekers into Europe because they're going to dilute the solidarity that's necessary for the welfare state, what they fail to acknowledge and understand is that the very wealth that enables the welfare state to have been established in the first place comes from those very same colonies. And so in that sense, I think the colonial histories and an emphasis on colonial histories and the extent to which they're significant in the making of Europe is really important. And this is particularly so in a period of increasing authoritarianism across Europe. And so I think I worry about the effectiveness of arguments centered so primarily on race. And my main question to Hans would be around this. The arguments across the chapters are very nicely built and the argument develops a sense of how we got here. It ends with a chapter on Brexit and imperial amnesia. And I guess I'm a little bit puzzled with that as well, because there's a hope at the end of the book that uh, by leaving Europe, the UK could become less Eurocentric. And now, even if that was possible, and personally I have to say I'm not holding my breath, there is another side to this, because what are the implications of Brexit for Europe, accounting for its own colonial histories? And more broadly, perhaps, having built up this argument about Euro-whiteness, what is its implication for Europe, with or without Britain? I mean, in both continental Europe and in Britain alike, far-right ideas of replacement theory are becoming normalized. Indeed, our own Home Secretary endorsed such ideas just last week in her speech, and her speech this afternoon, if any of you heard, was absolutely full-on, or another F-word. But um, <laughs> Europe may promote itself as a safe landing from empire. This is something that Timothy Snyder has argued and Hans also discusses in his book. But this is only ever a safe landing from empires that existed on European soil. It won't escape notice that it provides no landing for those who are frequently former subjects of Europe's former overseas empires who see Europe as a safe haven from the disruptions that were brought about by the end of a global system of empires. Here, the policies of European nations are uniformly to provide no safe landing and indeed to sink those making crossings. So I'll finish up by saying that I think the sentiments of the book are admirable and Europe, as Hans sets out, is a racialized project. But then so too is Britain. There's nothing specific to Brexit or unique to Britain that suggests that Britain will develop in a less Eurocentric direction. But if it does, it's much more likely to do so in the form of British nationalism, again, as set out by our Home Secretary just this afternoon. So I guess, given that I've mentioned the Home Secretary a couple of times, that would be one other question I would want to ask Hans. How does Euro-whiteness account for Suella Braverman? <laughs> and if we're committed to the idea of cosmopolitanism, then in a way there's no more cosmopolitan cabinet than the current UK government. But that's not really a vision of cosmopolitanism that I guess many of us, or some of us at least, would subscribe to. And so if we were to take the colonial history seriously and think about the need for a decolonial project for Europe, that would enable us to cut through this idea of cosmopolitanism as diversity, which often skews the debate to allow the status quo to be reproduced, as opposed to thinking about something 
that could and possibly would be more transformative. Thanks very much, Hans and Simon, for uh, inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be able to talk about this book. I actually read an earlier draft of it, so it's great to actually see it out there. There's a great deal of which I agree with Hans in the book about. I think it's an absolutely fascinating book. It's written with very considerable clarity. And I think, although he's not the first person to make this argument, as Hans has already said himself in the Euro-Africa book, is, is he explains really sharply, clearly, and succinctly why everybody who wants to talk about the European Union's history should equate themselves with the Algeria story. Because it kind of blows up quite a lot of things, just understanding some basics about it. Um, I think you say this at one point, don't you, Hans, like, at the point of the Treaty of Rome, so 1957, there is more territory of the European Economic Community in Africa than there is in Europe. And once you kind of take that on board, then you can't quite think about any of this in the same way. I want to wade back into like medieval and early modern history. I hope there's going to be a point to this in terms of uh, the payoff. Um, and this is partly because I think that I disagree with Hans a bit about this, but I also I think I disagree um, because I think in ways I think is consequential in terms of where we are now. So in Hans's story, the medieval uh, construction of Europe as Christian Europe um, works with the other really primarily, does, um, forgive me if I'm getting you wrong here, of Hans of Islam. And it's a story at its centre which has Spain and the defeat of Islamic Spain in 1492, which obviously also happens to be the year of beginning of Spanish Empire, effectively, uh, in the Americas with Colombia. Now, I think, though, that the story of how Europe is being defined at this point isn't necessarily actually about Christianity versus Islam. I think that's true about Spain, but I'm not, and maybe Portugal, but I'm not really sure that it works quite so effectively once we turn eastwards, and particularly if we put Austria or Holy Roman Empire with Vienna uh, as its capital at the centre. I think it's at least as much and more powerfully in the end, actually, about Western Christianity versus Eastern Christianity, or put it differently, Catholicism versus Orthodoxy. And that's why I think that if you go back and look at this like early... Austrian stuff, and I do really mean Austrian stuff this time, in the, 20th, at the beginning of the 20th century after the First World War, that they're so keen on invoking like Charlemagne, Holy Roman Empire. You go and read someone like Stefan Schweig, uh, and he writes about the Roman Empire as if it was entirely made up of what then become Catholic countries, and it has no, absolutely nothing, according to Stefan Schweig, to do with Byzantium. It's just like absolutely ahistorical, just like. But at the core of that, I think, is this idea that really defined what this Christian Europe meant as being Catholic Christianity. And I think then, if you look at a few things, bits of history, this idea that actually 
um, medieval and early modern Europe defined itself against Islam and regarded Islam as the problem or the other would be a better way of um, putting that kind of runs into some difficulties but that go all the way into the 20th century I would suggest so if you look at France and this is where we begin here is the French had an alliance with the Ottomans which began in 1536 and it lasted till 1798 until Napoleon went to try to conquer Egypt. Various points, the French are actually helping the Ottomans, the Holy Roman Empire, against Vienna, including when Vienna is under direct siege from the Ottomans, as late as in the 1680s. Now, you get people saying, what on earth are they doing? They're supposed to be on our Christian side. But this is, this is a several centuries long alliance where there's no sense of actually there being uh, Christian France on the side of Christian Austria against Muslim Ottomans. If we go on to the 20th century, we go to the First World War. Um, we see now Germany under the Kaiser. He persuades the Ottomans to come into the First World War on the German side and to issue a jihad against the French and the British. So here, actually, we've got, again, any idea of like religious unity and some Christian Europe, not only fighting against each other, which is obviously what the First World War is, but the Germans, as I say, invoking, asking the Ottoman Empire, the Sultan, pronounce a jihad against the, the British and the, the French. Now, I think then this has like consequences if we think about the middle of the 20th century, or the, the years of European integration, and we think the first part I mean by that is the 1950s. And we ask ourselves a question, what was Algeria doing in? Well, we know what the answer to this is, is that it was part of France. Note it wasn't actually part of the Cold and Steel community. It's yeah. part of the, yeah. the Treaty of Rome. But Algeria is in, it doesn't get freedom of labour in the way, so that would sort of kind of say that there is a bit something racialized about that. But think about the country that's being left out of the Treaty of Rome. There's lot, obviously there's lots of European countries. Switzerland, get left out of everything, we just ignore Switzerland. <laughs> Generally, they're, they're like Northern European countries, plus Austria, which is neutral. But then there's another one that's not in Eastern Europe, and not in, which is Greece. Now, what Greece is like democratic then, colonels come later. It's not Spain and um, Portugal which aren't, it's in NATO. What it is is orthodox, and I think that that is an issue that, go, that is quite like revealing. And I think you can see it as in the eurozone crisis. I've written some things about this, some of the language that is used. But there's a bit between, I think it's between Giscard and uh, some a German I've forgotten, where, where they're basically discussing the Greece in 2010, and they say, well, they never really were Europeans, were they? We never should have let them in. And I think that is quite revealing. Now, I think if you've try and think a bit more about this. I think this does raise some questions, and in a way, it's what Gaminda's already said, is like, is race quite doing all the work that you want it to do in the argument hands? Because yeah. I think it's different to say that the EU's own self-understanding and EU history has absolutely got to get to grips with the colonial history. I don't think there's any as a good disagree about that. But I'm not sure whether race can do everything that you want it to do of like the fusion of things that you're um, putting together. And I think that if we take like Algeria, 
um, for instance. And then we say, ask that question about like, why is Algeria in and Greece out? And think about it in materialist terms rather than go back to a history of who's not European in this story. The answer would be because Algeria had oil discovered in 1956 and Greece didn't have any resources to offer. What's Congo got to um, offer? It's got uranium. And then, obviously, that goes to the question of like what these European powers are doing being colonial in Africa in the first place. And this, I think, is load-bearing for now, because the question is obviously getting raised again by the kind of economic relations that European Union as a whole and individual European countries at the top of the hierarchy of the European Union want with African countries is about resources again. It is about them having metals that European countries don't have for the um, energy transition. And then, and this is a bit in the same vein, and I don't really, I kind of reasonably clear what I think about that, which is, is that I think that there's something more going on than race um, here, and you've got to think about it in terms of like resources too. This one I'm not so sure about. I'm going to throw it out there as a final thought, as a question for Johannes. This is like, well, why do you actually think that Macron went civilizational in 2019? Because your general thesis here in that chapter is like, as the problems of the neoliberal, to use that term, version of the EU yeah. came to the fore through the Eurozone, what came to substitute for it was civilizational. Yeah. And I sort of, sort of half buy that. But if we get beyond the general to the specific, like what is going on with Macron in like 2019? Is it just that, you know, Merkel said no to him about Eurozone reform, he's not getting anywhere with like strategic autonomy, so he decides to go civilizational? Maybe, but I think it needs a little bit more like pushing at, because it goes hand in hand with that moment, which I actually meant to say something about this, and um, which actually does fit with something to do with Austria that I left out, um, which is it goes hand in hand with when he wants to talk about resetting relations with Russia. And I do think this Russia question is quite central to a lot. So if you go back to, I meant to actually say this earlier, if you go back to this. Who do the Austrians think of, when I'm saying Austrian, I'm meaning old Austria, who do the Austrians think of in their 18th and the 19th century as that eastern other? It means Russia. Once the, they really defended Vienna for the last time against the Ottomans, who's the east? Who's the other? It's Russia. And what does Russia mean? It means the next version of orthodoxy after Byzantium. That that is quite in there. So in a sense then when Macron's wanting reset, he's he's messing around in those like waters. And it's interesting I think that if you go back and listen to some of the things that or read some of the things that Macron was saying at that time, he seemed to be spending quite a bit of time reading Orban's speeches. And Orban absolutely goes into all these like historical waters. Now, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I think it's just worth thinking a little bit more about like where is that actually coming from with Macron? And the other possibility, which kind of works a bit in your terms, would be it's about domestic politics in France. I think that it's such a turn from where he starts, he being Macron, that it's worth more thought. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, 
Can We Afford the Super Rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Thanks. So thanks to Hans for writing this book, first of all, which is something I would strongly recommend you to, to read. I'm very sympathetic to the book. Um, it's a great corrective to a certain unreflective uh, pro-Europeanism. And from a, a critical angle, um, it opens up, for me, it opened up a new dimension in terms of thinking about a critique uh, of the EU. What I want to try and do is get to the roots of the politics of uh, Euro-whiteness and to try and dig a little under this surface discourse. And in that respect, Hans in the book provides some clues, but they're rather implicit, so I want to see if I can push you a bit there. So I'm going to say two things about uh, what I think the book does very well. Uh, a third point that is interesting but ambiguous, and a fourth, a fourth point that I want to see how far we can go. So the first thing that the book does very well, and it's already been described by Simon right at the start, is to expose this fallacy of Eurocentrism, uh, to burst the bubble of the idea of Europe as a cosmopolitan entity, which is not just to believe that Europe is the centre of the world, but in some way to mistake Europe for the world. In a sophisticated version of that, the version that, for example, we get from Jürgen Habermas, or we did get from Jürgen Habermas uh, 20-odd years ago, is the idea that the European Union is the stepping stone to the construction of a world society. And there are a number of ways to expose this fallacy from practical examples such as the way that as internal borders are removed, external ones are hardened, or, for example, the belief that the EU somehow weakens the coercive aspects of the state, whereas it often strengthens them. But I want to focus a little bit more on the, on the flip side, the belief that Europe is the world, which is the belief that Europe is not the nation. And Hans, I think, here comes up with a useful term, which is the idea of regionalism suggests that far from being the antithesis of uh, nationalism, Europe has emerged as a nationalism writ large. And I think we can, uh, and Hans does suggest this, we can push this further and say that regionalism has all the worst aspects of nationalism, chauvinism, a belief in European superiority, a certain exclusivity, but none of the redemptive ones, the democratic politics, representative institutions, and a functioning public sphere. And it's important to note, as Hans does, and it's come up in the discussion, that the ethnic civilizational features of regionalism are advanced not only in the discourse of the far right, you can think Maloney, think Orban, but also of the center, um, both at the supranational level, von der Leyen, Borrell, as well as domestic politicians such as Macron, who are intertwined in the two layers, so to speak. Now, Eurocentrism is not merely an ideology. And I want to quote here uh, Samir Amin, who wrote what I think is the book on Eurocentrism back in the mid-1980s. Samir Amin was an Egyptian uh, political economist. To quote 
Eurocentrism is much more than a banal manifestation of European superiority. It implies a theory of world history and a global political project. In other words, these are not just words. And if we look then to the history of the, the, the concept of, of regionalism, the second point I want to say that Hans does very well in the book is to offer a historical reconstruction of European regionalism. Here he maps out the lineages of the idea of a European regional identity as revolving around the construction of whiteness, complexly intertwined with issues of religion, and I would add of myth itself. It's notable that Europe is a highly constructed concept, the idea of uh, Europa itself, the term signifies a Phoenician princess abducted by Zeus in one of the origin myths of Europe. Europa itself is not European, it has this inside-outside feature. The civilizational discourse uh, that Europe is entwined with is dynamic and, and Hans also shows how it moves from the idea of Christendom to a racial discourse of white supremacy as a justification for imperial expansion and exploitation. And then into the 20th century, eugenics and fascism. And it was interesting, maybe surprising, that there isn't a full-blown discussion of fascism in a book called Euro-Whiteness. Although Hans does note that a feature of Euro-cosmopolitanism is to present the Holocaust as an exceptional stain on Europe's otherwise untainted past, rather than a continuation of imperialism and colonialism, as, for example, Hannah Arendt uh, argued. And so the crucial historical hinge, for me at least, and I think for Hans to some extent as well, is the interwar era, when Europe becomes not simply a discourse but a project, when the aristocrats of the pan-European movement saw Europe's individual nationalisms as an obstacle to European greatness, foreclosing Europe's destiny to rule the world. It is in that moment that Europe moves from ideology to becoming a political project, although it's only in the post-war period itself that it becomes a concrete uh, project as we know it today uh, with European integration and the European Union. And in the foundational stages, as, as we've heard this evening already, Hans notes the intertwinement of the origins of European integration with the story of decolonialization, the fact that European integration in the core is the reflex of decolonization in the periphery, an attempt to maintain global or, or at least regional influence through the Euro-Africa project, substituting a competitive for a cooperative uh, colonialism and specifically consolidating French power in the core, as well acti as acting as a bulwark to communism, which acts as an other in the Cold War in a way which we haven't really discussed, but I'll come back to towards the end. Now, in terms of the project of integration, geopolitics, real geopolitics gets in the way, in the sense that the aspirations for European greatness are dampened by superpower rivalry globally and to some extent the project of regionalism is concealed by a social market economy. 
which remains largely a national affair. And what is interesting here is that in this historical narrative that, that Hans tells in the book, regional, regionalism returns after Maastricht, the end of history, and particularly through the Euro crisis phase, when Europe, Hans notes, becomes more white as neoliberalism prevails and the idea of a civic democracy recedes. Uh, a point also which Helen mentioned, uh, and I think does provide some clues, which I'll um, come back to as well. So this is the point, then, the third point of ambiguity, which is what this label of whiteness or Euro-whiteness really does. The book itself is a book about Europe, and more specifically the European Union, and in a sense the slippage between those two things. The label whiteness um, is a, a modern notion, sometimes traced, as Hans notes in the book, to the attempt in pre-Civil War US to split the dominated classes, the indentured Europeans, from the, the uh, African slaves. It was, in a sense, a tool of domination, a discourse to keep the dominated classes separate. In the many discussions of the book, no one really asked what whiteness actually means. And in my, this is my, going to be my, now my attempt to, to answer that question. I think it functions in the book as a sort of negative signifier. What it does, the discourse of whiteness, is to repress or deflect or displace another type of conflict, a conflict of class or a conflict of political economy, or simply a democratic conflict. In a certain terminology, we would say it's superstructural, which is not to say that it's unimportant. But the way Hans uses it is ambiguous. Now, the term Euro-whiteness comes from, uh, as we've also heard already, this uh, sociology of the Central European concept of a dirty white, a liminal zone of, to quote a recent author uh, from Central and Eastern Europe, a place where people are white, but not quite. And this idea of the hierarchies within the EU gets to something of what this concept is doing. But that wasn't particularly developed in the book, uh, along with the notion of the um, idea of semi-hegemony, German semi-hegemony, which Hans has, has worked on. So it surprised me a little that in the book there wasn't more about the various hierarchies among the member states of the European Union, or the internal colonialism, for example, that we might have uh, witnessed between debtor and creditor countries in the Euro crisis. The puzzle then for what whiteness stands for, the clue to the answer to that question is in the bit of the book which deals, in a sense, not with whiteness but with neoliberalism and how identity politics, including the discourse of whiteness, is a reflex of neoliberal depoliticization. In other words, the discourse of the ethno-cultural discourse of whiteness is the flip side to what Peter Meyer calls the void. And the void itself is a feature of the European Union's uh, constitutional architecture, or rather we should say the constitutional architecture of the member states of the European Union. And I will here quote from the book. On page eight, uh, Hans says, as economic policy has been depoliticized within the EU, political contestation has shifted to issues around identity, immigration, and Islam. So everything there is sort of wrapped up together. And as I put it in, in my review of his book, 
in the Jacobin uh, piece, with citizens unable to change its basic economic orientation, the EU is ever more obsessed by identity. In other words, the key issues of political economy, as they are subsumed through the process of European integration, ethno-cultural themes start to dominate as a result. And Hans identifies this happening through the Euro crisis phase as a period in which this regional ethnic discourse of whiteness comes to dominate. Of course, it's in this period, too, that the democratic deficit turns, to quote Gentilmanico Miani, into a democratic default. It's also the period, not coincidentally, in which international solidarity within Europe is eroded. Again, we can think of the relationship between Greece and Germany, which represents something bigger than just those two, two countries. And I think this is not accidental. And that brings me to final point, which is the Brexit discussion. The Brexit functions in the final chapter of the book as a potential uh, corrective. The chance for, Bre for Britain, in a sense, to be less white really means, in this reading of the book, the chance for it to repoliticize social life around material issues. Of course, whether that happens or not is a, is a whole other question, and that itself depends on politics. But to, in a sense, make my very final point, if we think about the discourse of neoliberalism and Euro-whiteness as having this longer uh, trajectory together, that actually European integration right from the start is not only about regionalism but also about depoliticization, then we can say that what is required as the antidote to Euro-whiteness is two things. A more fully universal universalism, to quote Hans and Samir Amin, and there I think we have a ready-made term with which to substitute regionalism, and that would be internationalism. And second, a focus on repoliticization, and specifically a culture in which our differences can be debated and determined democratically. So I will conclude that both these things require an even deeper critique of the EU, but that Hans takes us quite far along that route. Thank you very much. Well, uh, just before we open it up uh, for questions, I'm going to give Hans a, an opportunity to at least give some right of reply to the points that have been made to him. So, Hans. Thanks, Simon, and thank you all. I'll be very brief. I mean, thank you all for your comments. And I, I really like the way that each of you, from your different perspectives, kind of complicated my argument. I mean, I mostly agree with almost everything that, that each of you said. And I think there's a much longer version of this book, um, which would have kind of got into some of these complexities. So very briefly, I mean, Helen and Mike, you know, I think you're both right to say that I underplay some of the sort of internal tensions and hierarchies, uh, to use your term, Mike, within Europe. On the particular point you made, Helen, about Islam as an other, I think you're absolutely right that there's a complicated story of multiple others throughout this history. And by the way, this also links to Russia, which came up you know, once or twice as well, which at various points has been an other for Europe as well, and I think is becoming one again now. But also in terms of the, the question around, am I overplaying the role of Islam as another? I think you're right, there is a more complex story, Helen. I think most of what you're talking about, I think, comes a little bit later during the medieval period than, than you know, I was thinking in particular, you know, for example, the, the first time in which the term Europeans, you know, people are referred to as Europeans, 
is in the Mozarabic Chronicle in 1732. The context in which that word is used, Europenses, is specifically to contrast the Franks with the Arabs. Right, and then to come to the present day, or, or you know, the, the recent past rather, you know, you do have these extraordinary moments, you know, like for example in the, the debate about Turkish accession, um, you know, when in 2004 Fritz Bolkestein, who at the time is a European Commissioner, says that you know if Turkey were to join the European Union, it would mean that the liberation of Vienna in 1683 would have been in vain, <laughs> right? You know, so you know to show that that regardless of what the actual history was, I do think there's a way in which you know even retrospectively respectively, as it were, Islam becomes one of the central others, but I don't want to claim that it's the only other there's ever been um, for Europe. And then I guess the other thing I'll, I'll just say something about is, I mean, thank you both of you again, Helen and Mike, for bringing in the sort of materialist kind of part of this story, which you're quite right, Mike, is, is sort of slightly buried in a way in the book. But the way you've described it, I think, is, is quite right. The, the, the story I really try to tell is around how you know, there was this earlier period in the European project where, as I mentioned in my own remarks, there was this European identity which was centred on the social market economy and the welfare state and the kind of idea of solidarity that it was seen to embody. And so, for example, this phrase, the European way of life, was used at that time, you know, in the sort of even up to the 2000s by, you know, French socialists, you know, that what Europe means and the European way of life is, is the social market economy and the welfare state. And then I think that gets hollowed out. And then, um, you know, this void gets filled by, by culture and this idea of a sort of civilizational kind of e identity um, for Europe. So I do, you know, agree with you that, that, you know, what is driving this is actually some of these economic questions. And in particular, as you say, the depoliticization of economic policy within um, the European Union. And then, you know, Helen, in terms of Macron, you know, um, in a way, I just see the Macron turn as a sort of microcosm of what's happened you know, on a larger scale throughout Europe, which is precisely this story that as the, the project of a kind of Europe based on solidarity and economic solidarity gets hollowed out, um, that there's this turn towards culture. And it seems as if, you know, Macron is almost the last gasp of this kind of uh, attempt by the French centre-left to create a more redistributive Europe, a social Europe, um, and then that fails, and then and then he turns to, um, you know, and redefines his idea of l'Europe qui protège, a Europe that protects in terms of cultural protection rather than economic protection. I don't think I'm going to say anything more about Brexit. Um, I similarly I go through moments of optimism about post-Brexit Britain and moments of pessimism where I share your some of what you said but I think Mike's explained uh, very well how it could be an opportunity but it, that needs to be uh, we need to fill that with political content okay great hands are going to go straight up because we do have some time uh, for some questions and discussion from the audience I'm going to take three off the bat which go one two three and if you could keep them questions relatively short because we haven't got all day Hello, first of all, thank you so much to all the speakers for their valuable contributions. My question would be specifically about the concept of the dirty white and the kind of hierarchical positions in Europe between Eastern Europe specifically and countries such as Germany and France. And I was wondering if your analysis about race, about kind of the colonial aspect of Europe mainly seeking resources, having this civilization kind of tool or thinking about other countries uh, or seeing certain countries as strategic opportunities 
applies the same to the hierarchies in, within uh, the European Union or is something more specific about the hierarchies within Europe? And if that's the case, then how are you going to add that to the analysis of how the structural reason why Europe managed to kind of seclude this type of imperial history is through the external and internal narratives that they formed. Brilliant. Well done. Thank you very much. And uh, really interesting question. We'll go straight on to, we'll take three and then you can come back. So second one there and then we're down here. Thanks. Thank you so much. That was really brilliant. I wanted to come back to a question that Mike uh, asked about what uh, Euro-whiteness means or does and, and related to the question of race in the subtitle of, of the book. So if we think about what the term um, blackness does, one critique that we often hear addressed against uh, critical black studies is that blackness is often understood in two US-centric uh, terms related to US and Caribbean histories of slavery, plantation logics, etc. And that blacks in Europe or in Asia would relate with difficulty to, yeah. to this understanding of blackness. So my question is, what uh, did Euro-whiteness or did Euro-whiteness produce a particular understanding of Euro-blackness? Uh, and, and, and understood here, blackness understood here not as basically a non-white uh, normative subjectivity or, or, or non-whiteness, let's say. And if so, how does that relate to other understandings of blackness in the US or elsewhere? Thank you so much. Thank I think we should just have questions of this quality for the next 20 minutes <laughs> and give up on any arguments. Really interesting. The next one's here. You've got a lot to keep up with yeah. here. Obviously, my question not quite so good. But uh, I remember when there was a campaign for Britain to join the common market as it was then. And one of the arguments was we're, which you haven't mentioned, deserting our Commonwealth friends. Um, which actually, in the questions of race, meant Australia and New Zealand and Canada and not Africa and the Caribbean states in some minds. Mm. And I just wonder if you could comment on that, please. Super. Have a go. It's <laughs> <laughs> all for me. Uh, I think, Hans, it's all for you just for the moment. Okay. Um, so, look, they're all, they're, they're all great questions, and I need a, you know, I would need to, I need a long time to answer it, each of them properly. Um, very quickly, um, on the sort of internal hierarchies, I think the story of Central and Eastern Europe is, is quite complicated, um, but I sort of see roughly two sides to it. That on the one hand, there's clearly a way in which, um, to put it simply, Western Europeans look down on Central and Eastern Europeans. And, you know, I mentioned in my opening remarks that during the accession process, there's a way in which you can understand this as a kind of new uh, civilizing mission, um, right? That the Central and Eastern Europeans needed to be civilized, um, you know, and, and then they could join the European Union. Um, and this is part of a longer history, a sort of Western European gaze, um, you know, that goes back to the Enlightenment. Um, there's a very good book by Larry Wolf um, called Inventing Eastern Europe, which, which describes this very well. But then there is this other side, and, and for me this is captured by this phrase, the return to Europe, that is always used to describe from the perspective of Central and Eastern Europeans themselves what, how they understood the accession process, right? They were returning to Europe. 
Um, and it's really interesting when you think about it because, um, you know, that phrase is used so often and sort of taken for granted that it was a return to Europe. But people don't really interrogate what that phrase means. And I think it's really interesting when you, when you start to think about it because, you know, in what sense was it a return to Europe, right? If what we mean by Europe is just the post-war integration project that begins in 1945, then the Central and Eastern European countries weren't returning to it because they'd never been part of it, right? So it has to be some older idea of Europe and this is the longer history that I try to talk about in the book and I think it's fairly clear that that was at least in part an ethnic cultural civilizational idea of Europe that Central and Eastern European countries thought they were they were rejoining that doesn't fully answer your question I know but but that's all I think I have time to get into right now then on this really interesting question about race and in particular sort of um, the US versus Europe so I'm not sure that I, I can say much about blackness in um, Europe versus the United States. But one of the things I was trying to do in the book, and in, in a way this goes to something that Gaminda said as, as well, um, which is I think there is a tendency sometimes to think that whiteness makes sense in an American context, but not in a European context, right? That we understand that Europe has a colonial kind of history um, and that we need to engage with that. But this um, language of color is an import from America that doesn't quite work in, in Europe. And I think this is wrong. Um, and I think this is actually one of the blind spots. It's, by the way, part of the reason I, I wanted to have this particular title. Um, we now have a lot of studies of whiteness, you know, in the last decade or so, but nearly all of them focus entirely on the American experience. Um, and as I say, I think that slightly feeds this idea that it's not a relevant category in the European context. I think it absolutely is. And, and in a way, the gap that I, I think we need to try to fill, and my book is a you know, very, very small piece of that, is to start to think about European histories of whiteness, how the concept of whiteness has functioned in a European context. And just to give you one example that shows this is absolutely a relevant category in the European context. If you think about, say, the Code Noir, which was the, you know, the edict, the French edict that governed slavery in French colonies, you know, uses that exact same language of, of colour. So I think the American story and the European story um, are actually much uh, more similar than a lot of people want to believe. Um, and then finally, on the Commonwealth, so I think I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that that is true, that when, um, in the, for example, the debate during the 1975 referendum, uh, when Barbara Castle, for example, was talking in exactly the terms that you were hinting at, that this is a sort of betrayal of the Commonwealth, she was absolutely talking about the non-white Commonwealth as well as the white Commonwealth. It's interesting from today's perspective, because it feels very different now, but at that time, it was mainly the left that really liked the idea of the Commonwealth in the 1970s, um, and they were absolutely talking about the non-white commonwealth as well. That's an interesting point because earlier when Churchill said that Britain shouldn't join, he also appealed to the commonwealth, but his appeal, it seems to me, was to the right. white commonwealth. Right. When India, in fact, became a part of the group of countries destined for independence, Churchill sort of lost so much interest in there being this other unity alongside a European one that Britain would be central to. Um, and at that point, Churchill starts moving towards uh, being pro-European for Britain. The, the quote from Barbara Castle, the famous quote in the, in the debate in the Oxford Union in 1975, she says, what kind of internationalism, to come back to your, um, your term, Michael, uh, what kind of internationalism is it that says, henceforth this country must give priority to a Frenchman over an Indian, a German over an Australian, an Italian over a Malaysian? Right. Good. Yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, and I guess that's the hope at the end of your book as well, is that something of that spirit could be rekindled. Now we've got time for doing this all over again. So, one there. Reparations? Yeah, great. Okay, lovely. And now uh, at the back of Matt, the man sitting behind the Mac. Hi, it's on the hope. One of the best things about the book, I mean, there's lots of good things about the book, but the most interesting thing about the book is your account of British migration policy, I think. Uh, and because that was new to me. I mean, it was as soon as you look at it, you think, God, that's true, but I hadn't thought of it like that. That as Britain became more and more interested in European integration, it became more and more closed to Commonwealth migration. So yeah. as it becomes easier for Europeans to move to Britain, it becomes harder for people from South Asia or from the Caribbean to come to Britain. And that's directly experienced in the lives of Britain's migrant popula immigrant population. I thought that's a really interesting connection. And so now that we've left, then the question is, does it reverse? And, and uh, it seems to me that I mean, my question is, has it? Not will it, but has it? Because we can, whatever we think about Suella Braverman, and her particular politics on migration, and she's, she's exercised about unlawful migration, unauthorised migration into Britain, but she, her government presides over unprecedented levels of immigration, even post-EU period, predominantly from the, the non-white Commonwealth. Um, and so my question is, isn't this just at the material level, the level that Mike's particularly interested in, at the political level, ooh, it could be this, it could be that, but at the material level it's just happening that reorientation back and that, that ending of the Eurocentrism in, in domestic life is, is, is just a process happening. Thank you so much. And we have a third there. Yeah. Thank you. I've kind of got two questions, but the first one's very quick. And it Let's just have that one then. Oh. <laughs> it kind of picks up on the point about European refugee policy, and I just wondered whether the refugee policy towards the Ukraine war features at all in the book yeah. um, because certainly in, in the British context it seemed like a very racialized policy of preference towards white uh, Europeans over for example Syrians or you know, other refugees. Yeah. Although we didn't really let in anybody so it's like equality there but you're right okay so there's the three um, do you want to take any of them? That, that, Maybe I like the one that reparations on reparations because you've written about this. I mean, where to start though on that? Yeah. Because I mean, in a way, and I guess picking up on the question of blackness as well, one of the ways in which debates in the UK get framed, and I think the use of the language of blackness precisely points to an American orientation to these debates. Because if Britain is anything, it's not just black and white. There's a history of migration to Britain from both Africa and Asia more broadly. And the, the colonial histories that locate Britain in the context of its relations to both Asia and Africa and make its extractive policies so immense that reparations wouldn't just be to African countries, it would be to Asian countries, and it would be also to a rethinking of the very structures of global inequality that European colonialism has established. And if we think about that in the context of climate change, which is perhaps one of the most visible ways in which that global inequality is being manifest to the extent that the people who contributed the most to climate change are the ones who suffer the least from its effects, whereas those who've contributed the absolute least suffer the most. And that reparations, for me, wouldn't be something that was done in a one-to-one -one relationship, but rather to think about how do we create a world that works for all of us. 
and addressing the climate crisis would be one way of doing that. So it sort of takes away from what uh, we're focusing on in terms of Hans's book, but that would be my uh, entry point into the and debate. So fascinating there, it links up with something that came in at the end of Mike's talk, which is that there's still in this conversation a desire to move towards or striving towards making a contribution to human universality or to universality generally, which in some paradoxical way the European discourse of cosmopolitanism at least opened up that possibility. And I think a huge question for me in the book is whether we can think of cosmopolitanism simply as this European myth, exclusively as that. A regionalism, European regionalism certainly is uh, not conceived as an end until you cut off Kansas' sentence. And then it is. European regionalism is, uh, can be a done deal, an attained moment. But insofar as inside Europe, inside European politics and society, there is this aspiration to make a contribution to universality, that seems to be not over. Whether Europe itself can make a contribution to that, I don't know. Anyway. So I just add, yeah. I mean, do you think it can make a material contribution? Because there's no point to having a commitment to universal universality, and, if, and that material contribution would be to recognise that the very conditions of our existence within Europe yeah. have been funded through the extraction of colonial wealth. So are we going to give the money back? as a material embodiment of universality. I'm not going to speak for anybody on that. Well, so I'll add just two quick things to that, which is that, you know, my sense is that, you know, there's just the beginning of this debate about reparations in Western European countries that had overseas colonies. But even there, and here, you know, I have in mind, Gomendi, you know, the way you open your paper on a decolonial Europe, where you contrast the way that, you know, Germany paid reparations um, to the State of Israel and to the uh, Jewish community for the Holocaust in 1954. Luxembourg Agreement, um, but yet you know it's only really been in the last couple of years that there's a there's a discussion even about uh, reparations for Namibia, where Germany carried out the first genocide of the 20th century, and even that is framed not in terms of reparations, but in terms of basically aid, development aid, right? Which I think shows the kind of contrast. But you know, as kind of embryonic as that debate is in Western European countries, I think. The reason I'm really quite pessimistic that there'll be much progress on this is I think Central and Eastern European countries, um, I think, are even less willing to think about some kind of collective European responsibility for European colonialism because they say, well, we weren't colonising powers ourselves. We were the victims of imperialism um, ourselves. Last word on the great P question about... Yeah, so Peter, thank you so much for really summarising my argument in the last point, part of the book. And, and really that was, you know, when I was saying earlier, Gaminda, about my more optimistic moments, it was channelling that. This is very personal for me, right? Because my father was Indian, my mother is Dutch. Um, and they both came to Britain in the 1960s at a time when actually it was much easier for somebody like my father to come to Britain than someone like my, my mother. Um, and actually, my father was much more of an insider in British society as an Indian man than my, than my mother was as a, as a Dutch woman. And in the course of my lifetime, that's been reversed, that position, where it's become harder and harder for people from Britain's former colonies to come to Britain, and much, much easier for people from Europe to come to, to Britain. And I think you're absolutely right, Peter, that the statistics show, to answer your question, Simon, you know, apparently, you know, not necessarily out of an intention by this current government, this is now being partially reversed. You know, the extraordinary rise of non-EU immigration since Brexit, in particular from India and Nigeria, 
you know, it's quite extraordinary, you know, so, so it does seem like that is happening. I would like to go even further, that's the argument I make at the end of the book, but I think to some extent it's already happening. And then very final quick word on the racialization of refugees, I think that's absolutely right, but I think I would say that it's even more racialized in continental Europe yeah. than it is in Britain. I think that was what my facetious point was making, but he's lost you, you've lost him to his phone. <laughs> it's, always, it's always a risk. As it is, we've come to an end. You may have left us already, but we're now we're going to leave together. So it only remains to uh, thank our panellists for a wonderful Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.